welcome everyone to episode 76, Glyco Pure. I am Dr. Kiki and I'm here with Dr. Dalen James and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm recovering a bit. I had an international excursion to Korea, but uh, it was pretty, pretty rough. I'm going to get to rant. It sounds like it was a little bit crazy. Crazy. It was just hard. It was a painful, painful ordeal. Being there was great. I have to say a shout out to Peniel Nam, who invited me or had me invited to a conference. She's a listener to the podcast. So Peniel, thanks again. Glad you're out there. Tell your friends. But uh, it was a long trip for a day, a day's work in Korea. I was on the plane more than I was on the ground. But I got to say, Korea is a great place and the people are so warm. And I was very, very well hosted. So thanks, Korea. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, we're glad you're back safely and we're able to record another episode of the podcast. A little maybe the worse for the wear, jet lag and all that, but you're back. You're going to make it. It'll be okay. I think so. So let's get down to business. Make sure you engage with all of us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools like our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released. That email is going to contain all the links that, to the papers that we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. You know it's going to make your life easier, so sign up. Also sign up for our stem cell forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells, and it's called the Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, you can always follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, we've got a great show today. Our guest for episode 76 is Dr. Stephen Duncan. He's professor and chair of the Department of Regenerative Medicine and Cell Biology at the Medical University of South Carolina. And we're going to talk to him about his work and latest paper about a new method of creating more homogenous populations of IPSC-derived hepatocytes. We're going to find out exactly what that means, too, for those of you who don't know. But first, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Yes, Kiki, yes, yes. IPS-derived hepatocytes in our future, but we're going to hear about some science first. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner, and you'll get some more info about that. All right, Kiki, you're going to start with some uh, roundup of the, the science? You know it. We have, as usual, a whole bunch of really interesting stories. This week was the Nobel Prize week. I love this week. It's so exciting. Every day I get up, I can't wait to hear. You're like, am I going to get a prize? No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that, but there is a secret dark corner that they're going to say, and for doing almost nothing at all, we're going to change it up this year and give it to some rando. That's right. Well, unfortunately, you weren't called very early in the morning this year, but uh, other researchers were. Japanese scientist, cell biologist, Yoshinori Osumi of the Tokyo Institute of Technology received the Nobel for his work on autophagy. And this is cellular self-eating. It's a method with which 
cells break down and recycle junk. All those used up proteins that are floating around or protein fragments that are just taking up space and not doing anything useful and gumming up the works of metabolism. This is a very important process for all cells because without it, cells would die. So this is a breakdown process crucial to life of recycling. It's pretty awesome. So Osumi's discoveries, they were in yeast and they really helped reveal the mechanism and the significance of this fundamental process. And other research has shown that, you know, this cellular trash buildup, you get uh, neurological diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So if we can figure out how to fix the process that Osumi elucidated, we could be able to get rid of a lot of disease. Other researchers for the Nobel Prize, researchers in chemistry got the award for micromachines. So nano motors, the tiniest motors in the, well, known universe, man-made anyway. It's a wonderful advancement in microscience that a group of researchers was able to develop over a number of decades. Jean-Pierre Sauvage, Sir J. Fraser Stoddart, and Bernard L. Faringa. I think it's uh, Faringa designed a rotor. And it, this little tiny nano rotor, it spins around an axle, and it can actually spin a glass jar. Like these little tiny motors can spin actual glassware that's tens of thousands of times larger. What? Than the motor itself. Yeah, these are super oh. strong chemical agents. Like basically you turn them on just by adding a little chemical reagent, the molecule shifts and boop, 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 suddenly you've got activity and they're very strong. And then the Nobel Prize in physics is for donuts and pretzels, according to the popular media. Wait a second, I could have gotten that. <laughs> David Thulis, F. Duncan, M. Haldane, and J. Michael Kosterlitz won the Nobel Prize in Nobel Prize in Physics for theoretical discoveries of topological phase transitions and topological phases of matter. So basically, that exact point at which matter shifts between, say, liquid and solid, and what happens to magnetic moments of spin of the electrons that are involved in the matter at hand. So this is related to superconducting physics and things that occur at various transition phases. Well, all very impressive work. And hearing you talk about it, I can see why I didn't win it this year. But I'm going to get, get to work. I'm going to get in the lab and start making a motor maybe that can do something even better than that motor. Yeah. Just got to figure it out. You could make a motor that'll, I don't know, carry a horse. A motor that cures cancer. Yes. There you go. That would do it. Reported this week, measles... This is from the Pan-American Health Organization and the World Health Organization together announcing on September 27th that uh, measles has been eliminated from the Americas. Yay. And when I saw this, I went, wait a minute. I just remember this year we had a measles outbreak. And a couple of years, like every year there are measles outbreaks. And we're always talking about how people need to be vaccinated and there are measles outbreaks. What's going on? And so what's happening is we do have measles outbreaks that do crop up in the Americas. But they are found to be from people who bring measles from outside of the Americas. So tourists, travelers people who come from areas where there are outbreaks who might be carriers because they are unvaccinated. And then the people who do usually get measles and 
cause the outbreaks or who are involved in the outbreaks here, say in the United States, it's because they're unvaccinated. Mm. Even though we are so-called, it's been so-called eliminated from the Americas, it's not eliminated from the world. And we have international travel, so we still need to consider the fact that people are bringing these, this disease in and others like it, and that vaccination is the best line of defense for keeping populations of people who can die from this disease safe. Yeah, measles, no joke. And I no. guess this is good news. But is anyone t- thinking about the poor little measles out there? Those few remaining measles that are penned oh. up somewhere in like Mogadishu? They're under threat. Their whole society is being eradicated. <laughs> There's got to be someone out there who's got to stand up for measles. It's like weeds. You know, we don't like a bacteria or a virus because it's just not good for us. Yeah. I don't think it's fair to the measles. We're worried about pandas, but we're not worried about measles? What? Seriously. seriously. You're hilarious. Oh, my goodness. I'm not making a joke here. Maybe I am. I know. Okay. Did you hear the news about the sugar industry? This is certainly no joke. This was published uh, September 12th, so a couple of weeks ago now in JAMA Internal Medicine. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, basically uh, did a Google search on industry influences. The sugar industry influences. And she spent the last 10 years looking into the sugar industry's influence on science. She said she was Googling the trail letter to library archives, and she came across dusty boxes of records from a closed sugar company in Colorado. It's always those dusty boxes that they carry the skeletons, right? She says, and I quote, the first page I looked at in that archive had a confidential memo. I knew I had something no one else had ever talked about before. And that is that the sugar industry has been using money to influence researchers. Specifically in this article, it was revealed that they paid nutrition experts from Harvard University to downplay studies linking sugar and heart disease. And this happened in the 60s, but according to the documents, it does appear that this kind of influence redirected or was part of redirecting the scientific narrative as a whole about sugar's influences on health. It's nuts. Is this guy around? Because I'd like to talk to this professor, Paola in academia. Yeah. Not unprecedented, but at Harvard? At Harvard, I know. How many deaths? How many people? Got fat and died because of this guy. Sugar! Go eat it! Whatever. It's terrible. I'm not against sugar as a whole. I mean, glucose is good. Our bodies are powered from glucose. So it's not like, no sugar, you can't do it. But there's a balance, as with everything. Eat an apple, but, you know, eat it with the skin. Don't just drink apple juice. You want the fiber. You want all the stuff that comes with it because it all works together within your digestive system, right? Yeah. And every once in a while, sure, have a cookie. I don't care. I love cookies. I like making cookies, but (laughs) don't eat the whole box, right? Don't eat a tub of ice cream. You got to be sensible. I guess it it falls on people, too, to be sensible. But let's be honest. When you have some big wig at Harvard saying, it's fat, not sugar. Some people may, you know, they may get yeah. comfortable with the, with a half a box of cookies. Right, and you eat the fat-free, sugar-high yeah. oh, cookies. no fat, low fat. It's yeah, good great. for me. And meanwhile, it's affecting your cardiovascular system. And then you yeah. die. So not good at all in general. Bad man. Bad. I hope he's, he got fat died, that guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
some interesting gene-related research related to dogs. Dogs are nice. Eh. Dogs, you know, they look at you and those big sad eyes and you're like, oh, you want to eat some food now, don't you? I could take it or leave. I know what you want. Yeah, well, dogs, they're sweethearts. Sometimes. Whatever. Some people like dogs. Scientific report, an article from animal behaviorist Per Jensen and colleagues at Linkoping University, and I'm sure I did not pronounce that correctly in Sweden, say... I thought that was in Japan, by the way you said <laughs> Link, I have, it's got an umlaut. I never took Germanic languages in school, so I got issues with umlauts. Sorry. Right. <laughs> to our Germanic language friends who are listening now, I am sorry. Anyway, the gene, there's a gene Sez6L, that's S-E-Z-6L. It's one of five genes in a stretch of DNA in the beagle that's associated with sociability in dogs. Basically, they're like, yeah, you know, there's got to, some dogs are more sociable than others. And so let's try and figure out if there are genes and if there are what genes might be involved in that variation, right? And maybe some of those genes were ones that were selected for during domestication. They took DNA samples from beagles that have been raised in a lab. Beagles are a very common study animal for many purposes. But they tested sociability, and this is a fun test. They gave dogs an unsolvable problem in a room with a woman who's an observer who the beagles had never met before. And so the device puzzle, there were three treats under different sliding lids. Two of them were really easy to open and the dogs could get it. And the other one, the third, was impossibly sealed so that they couldn't get it open. And then basically they observed what the dogs did to try and get the observer's attention. Which dogs kept trying to do it by themselves the longest? Which ones started looking and going towards the observer sooner, trying to indicate that they wanted that lid to be open to get the treat? And so basically they determined from that which dogs were more sociable, or so not. the one who goes to the person quicker is the more sociable one, I guess. Yeah, that's what would yeah. be assumed. And so they found that there was this region on chromosome 26 where uh, there are five genes of which this SEZ6L is one. And it's also a gene that has been indicated to be associated with schizophrenia and um, autism and aggression in human social disorders. And four out of the five genes altogether have been linked to these. So similar genes have led to sociability in dogs, as are involved in social behaviors in humans. That's interesting. You know, no one looks, yeah. talks about dogs about as study animals, probably because they love them so much and don't want to see them put in a cage and experimented on. But I know for a fact dogs have given a lot of insight into like narcolepsy and I guess now other neuropsychiatric conditions like autism, aggression, schizophrenia. Dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. They're useful for something, I guess. <laughs> you know what's hilarious is I do another podcast and one of my co-hosts on that podcast, he doesn't like cats. So I've got one podcast where co-host doesn't like cats, <laughs> another co-host where the <laughs> doesn't like dogs. <laughs> this is Ah, this is hilarious. And then there's you. And, and then there, you. I'm just in the middle here going. You just love all things. I like the animals. I do. Good person. <laughs> Moving on. 
I stole this story from you. So Monsanto, I thought it would be nice to just keep going on the genetic front to segue into your stem cell news. Monsanto has bought the rights from Harvard University and MIT to use CRISPR-Cas9 in gene editing for agricultural use. And so this is the first time that the Broad Institute has issued a license for agricultural use of CRISPR, and it is a non-exclusive license, which I think is essential for this technology because the technology is such an applicable tool to so many uses that to uh, have it pinned down by one organization or another could be problematic. Additionally, though, it's interesting to me because I didn't think the patents on CRISPR-Cas9 had been all figured out between Berkeley and Harvard. So I find it interesting that this is moving forward. Anyway, head of biotechnology at Monsanto told New Scientist, getting more productivity out of less acres with less inputs is clearly a critical thing for humanity. And gene editing is another tool that can help us accelerate that. One limitation that I thought was fascinating to this deal is that the licensed technology cannot be used to modify tobacco for commercialization. And they're also not allowed to use CRISPR technology to develop gene drives or to make sterile terminator seeds requiring farmers to buy new seeds every year. That is fascinating because it gives you a, a hint of how the technology is kind of creeping into the socio. We're getting this kind of biotechno-sociological interface, a singularity, so to speak, where all these factors are playing in on each other. Yep. That does it for me. How about some stem cells? I got some stem cells for you. I got some news. I'd like to kick it off with a nod to our friend, Dr. Alan Eaves of Stem Cells Technology. He was named EY Entrepreneur of the Year Pacific 2016. He was a recent guest on the show, if you remember, and he started stem cell technologies. I love talking to him. He gave us some real insight into how he got his business off the ground, and I thought he had such a solid core philosophy. It was really focused on the business, yeah. and clearly, I'm not the only one. I'm sure you agree, and it looks like uh, much of the world agrees as well. So as the Pacific Region's EY Entrepreneur of the Year 2016, Alan will compete with top entrepreneurs. Compete? Compete. Wow. This is an award, but it's pretty intense. <laughs> He's going to compete with these entrepreneurs from the prairies, Atlantic, Ontario, and Quebec regions for the national honor of Canada's EY Entrepreneur of the Year 2016 to be presented at a gala celebration on the 22nd of November 2016 in Toronto. In June 2017, Canada's EY Entrepreneur of the Year 2016 will move to the world stage to compete again. Oh, my God. I mean, does he even want to win this thing? He's, it seems like he's, they're really putting <laughs> him through the ringer. So then he goes to the world stage, competes with more than 50 country recipients for the title of EY World Entrepreneur. Yeah, he's got to work for this, but he's already been uh, identified as someone who has done a lot of great work. So... I have a. Yeah. We could say he's halfway there, but it seems like he's a—he's only a third of the a way. Third there. of the way, yeah. It's a high honor. Imagine how many people are competing for this one regional entrepreneur of the year. A lot of entrepreneurs out there, but in my view, he's the best. 
All right, so not to uh, Dr. Eves, and now into a couple technical stories I have. I know maybe not so sexy, but important. You know, there's high-profile items that everybody's already read about. I'm going to tell you about some of these things in the, in the may have fallen through the cracks, for better or worse, maybe. So the first story I have to tell you about is efficient long-term cryopreservation of pluripotent stem cells at minus 80 degrees. You know, the way we do cell preservation nowadays, how do we do preserve ourselves, Kiki? How do we preserve ourselves? Long term. No, ourselves. When we put them away. Ourselves? I was like, <laughs> uh, drinking lots of alcohol. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that too. We for freeze. The, the we, have, we have preservatives like formaldehyde. We have freezing. We, we don't do it very well. The thing is, we put them in liquid nitrogen most of the time. Why? Because, you know, liquid nitrogen, it's very, very, very cold. And that's thought to be like the real main mediator. And and minus 80, which is pretty darn cold, is thought maybe not to uh, be as good. The cryoprotectants are maybe thermally a little less stable when frozen at those higher temperatures, minus 80. Consider that a high temperature. Crazy. But the dependency on liquid nitrogen for cell storage, it significantly increases the operational expenses. And it raises some issues related to like impaired working efficiency and safety. Sometimes when you put all these things in a bath of liquid nitrogen, there's some concerns that like some like viral agents may go in between the samples. So this group, Zuhan's group, in uh, scientific reports uh, reported using a minus 80-based protocol that incorporates FICOL-70 as a cryoprotectin and then some other things like dimethyl sulfoxide, DMSO, in the presence or absence of FBS, and found that all these things can be a reliable cryopreservation medium and temperature for various kinds of human and porcine, get that, pig pluripotent stem cells, for periods that extend to at least one year with post-law viability, plating efficiency, and retention of pluripotent phenotype that compares to that achieved at liquid nitrogen storage. So the idea there is that we have an alternative now. But I would be wary about it, frankly, because, you know, the whole reason we use liquid nitrogen, in my view, is because when there's a blackout and everyone's scrambling, trying to move their stuff from one freezer to the next, you know, that's the, the stuff of nightmares or your, your, your gases go bad. They run out, all your cells die. That's what keeps me up at night. But I never worry about my LN2, Kiki. I never worry about it. Right. Because it's there and it's just sitting there. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's not going to go anywhere and it's going to keep everything nice and stable and... Chilly. Yes. Nice and chilly. Yeah. And right now, as we record this, there's a hurricane bearing down on the south and the southeast so wishing the best to all of our colleagues and friends and family who are, are there and to their cells. For sure. Watch out for those <laughs> cells. I mean, the cells can be replaced. The lives cannot. So clearly we're worried about the humans, but I worry about cells sometimes too. Yeah. So liquid nitrogen, minus 80, uh, who knows? We'll see how that plays out, but it's a nice option to have. Another technical story is biologists are planning to scoring system for antibodies. You know, one of the great laments of researchers everywhere, I think, is they're like, you know, these conversations. They say, oh, did you get a good antibody? This is maybe more the case years ago when everything was polyclonal and batch-to-batch variation. But you'd be agonizing. It's, oh, I don't have a good antibody. Oh, no, my antibody was not specific and, you know, suicide. 
So it's a big mess. There's like thousands of these antibodies out there, and biomedical experts are planning to create a scoring system. I know this sounds boring to most of the people who want to hear about cancer cures, but this is important stuff. It helps researchers do their work. It helps them cure their cancers. The only problem is how do we find out how that ranking would even work, and how do we get the manufacturers or you know, classifying? There's a lot of these websites that consolidate all the antibodies out there. How do we get them to adopt the standard? Well, the idea comes from a workshop hosted this week at Asilomar, California, by the Washington-based Global Biological Standards Institute, one of a lot of groups that's concerned about these poorly characterized antibodies and thinking that they may be the major culprit behind you know, the lack of reproducibility between biological experiments. And that's really the key. We need to be able to say that this antibody that worked for me yeah. is going to work for you the same way. Yep. This is an old concept. It's always been appealing. But to do it, it's an enormous task, according to Robert Polakowicz, the chief scientific officer of Cell Signaling Technology, who's a major antibody manufacturer in Danvers, Massachusetts. According to him, it's still not clear how feasible that would be or how it would be implemented. Well, researchers are still going to need to validate even high-scoring antibodies within the system for their own experiments, according to uh, Leonard Friedman, who's another part of the GBSI. But a scoring system is going to help give scientists confidence that an antibody will work for its expected use. Just a little tip for all of you out there about good antibodies. I start with e-biosciences, BD, R&D systems, or cell signaling technology. If you can get an antibody from them, most of the time they work for me. Just a little aside, you know. I'm not getting paid by them. I'm just trying to help. What do you think? A classifying system for the thousands of antibodies out there, Kiki. Is it viable? Is it ever going to happen? I hope it would happen. I mean, it'll help so much research. And like you said, reproducibility is a major issue in biology. And if this is a factor, which it probably is, it'll help us actually determine mechanisms and pathways so much more accurately and that'll help us determine drug targets even better. I mean, there's so many ways that it would influence medical research, biomedical research, that I hope it does happen. Sure. I mean, it's one of those things no one talks about. It's yeah. not sexy, but it's, it's the foundation on which a lot of good work is built. I'm excited. I, I didn't know there was a Global Biological Standards Institute. I know, you know, National Institute on Science and Technology, you know, the people who determine atomic time and how much a, a gram weighs and all that. But it's great that there's a group that is setting. They've got it. There's a path. Let's do it. We got these guys too. I mean, let's be honest. The gram and the time and all those measurements probably a little bit more important than antibodies considering they're universal. But still, the GBSI has a role, has a role. No one's ever heard of them. I'm not surprised. Nobody cares. Nobody but me. All right, <laughs> let's get out of the technical drudgery and get into a little bit something a little bit sexier, at least to me. ULK4 gene mutation, it's been tied to schizophrenia, a report in scientific reports. Scientists have discovered new evidence strengthening a link between a previously uh, misunderstood gene, I guess you could call it, and a major mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, also bipolar disorder, depression, and autism. So this is led by the University of Aberdeen. expands on an unexpected finding that was made by the same team two years ago. And it linked to poorly understood with mental health disorders. This was a study in 2014. It looked at five major groups of patients and identified that a mutation in ULK4 was more frequently found in patients with schizophrenia. 
The same mutation was also found in some people with bipolar disorder, depression, and autism, so it was enriched in these kind of mental disorders. So in the latest study, in a follow-up on that, in a collaboration with the Tongji University in Shanghai, the team turned off ULK in subsets of stem cells in the mouse brain, and they observed that in the offspring, of, are the offspring, the daughter cells of those stem cells, turned up in the wrong places. They mismigrated and they communicated less with their neighboring nerve cells. And when they were turned back on the ULK gene, they could rescue this phenotype. And so they concluded that this uh, gene plays an essential role in normal brain development. And when it goes wrong, the neurodevelopmental conditions may arise or the risk for them may increase because of mismigrated genes. Although the chances of inheriting the condition are estimated between 60 and 80 percent, the genes responsible for causing the condition remain highly controversial. This is schizophrenia we're talking about. So identifying which genes are responsible, this one being really, I think, strong candidate, ULK4, it's uh, really important for opening up development of therapies uh, to try and have targets, you know, to figure out how we can maybe mitigate the development of schizophrenia in these young developing brains. Yeah, if you can get the developing stem cell cellular targeting system back on track somehow, that would be amazing. And yeah, this gene could be a part of it. Got to get these cells, get them back on track. Got to get these Mm -hmm. cells to the right place. You got it. The communication system needs to be turned back on. You're going the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) These poor unmoored cells. All right. Last story. Vitamin D. Vitamin D in the sun, they've been integrally tied. Multiple sclerosis. We talked about that with one of our guests. Now, vitamin D, it increases the number of blood stem cells during embryonic development. That's according to Harvard researchers in a report in Cell Reports. This is by Tristan North, a stem cell biologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And what they did is they showed that a short exposure to vitamin D it influenced the number of blood stem cells in human umbilical cords and zebrafish embryos. So they went seamlessly from human to fish. And they hypothesized that the levels of vitamin D during fetal development may play an important role in the preventing the onset of blood-related disorders that arise later in life. Mm-hmm. So this is important. You know, vitamin D deficiency affects more than a billion people worldwide. And it's known already that children born with severe vitamin D deficiency often or a lot of like blood-related hematological phenotypes, including you know, anemia, low platelet count. So Tristan North, they showed, uh, and her group showed, that vitamin D affects inflammatory signals that help control the formation of these blood stem cells. And they also found that when vitamin D exposure was blocked, fewer of the stem cells were formed. I should say there's this caveat, and the, the researchers, as I alluded to, they went from fish to humans, because it's difficult to test the response in mice, because the animals... You know, mice have very different vitamin D inflammatory targets than the ones observed in both fish and humans. Also, the investigators didn't really know if the vitamin D levels in the cord samples that they tested were low because they came from a person who had low vitamin D initially in the parent or if it was uh, just specific to the conditions at the time of isolation. So there's some work to build on there. The next step there, North and her colleagues, they hope to test cord samples from which they know the vitamin D status clearly to see if umbilical cords with healthy levels respond better or worse to stimulation of cords that are vitamin D deficient donors. So 
a role for vitamin D in hematological disorders, and it really has broad implications, Kiki, because it makes you think, you know, you're pregnant, maybe you want to make sure you're getting enough sunlight, maybe mm -hmm. vitamin D supplements for your young kid. Everyone's crazy about not having them in the sun. Maybe your kid should take a little sun, you know, not too much. A little bit of sun is good for you. Yes, indeed. And I know this is interesting to me because there's been other research, you know, vitamin D effects on the mother are supposed to be involved in preeclampsia and hypertension and other effects that can lead to poor offspring outcomes or even miscarriage. But there's also data, and I believe this is from like northern climates where or far southern climates where there is not a lot of sun during the winter months, that children born in those climates, they tend to have like more asthma and allergies and that the immune system of children whose mothers didn't get as much enough vitamin D while they were pregnant are affected. So mm. this kind of all follows in that line of, of research that vitamin D, you don't just want the folic acid for the neural tube. Maybe vitamin D is something really important also. Right. And putting it into context, the sun. It's the, the driver sun. of every all life on Earth. Maybe it's yeah. not the worst thing in the world. We shouldn't be protecting ourselves from this beautiful orb. If I'm going to be in the sun for an extended period of time, sunblock, yes. But if I'm going to be just going outside, walk to the store and like incidental sun for, you know, 15 minutes to a half an hour during a day or something... No sunblock. I don't need to put sunblock in my moisturizer on my face. This is my personal choice, but this is what I've chosen. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens with melanoma and whatnot, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. God forbid. But you have a young kid. Have you ever had someone? Oh, these are the most annoying people. I'm usually like an older lady who will snap at me, and I'm on the street in a sunny day, and I'm like, put a hat on that kid. And I'm walking with my baby in the car, and I'm like, Get, mind your own business, number one, and you're so wrong, number two, you old lady. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Uh, I think that's a rant for another day, people. <laughs> mind your own business. No. <laughs> all right. That was a fantastic roundup. Remember that all of the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants you to know about their awesome new wall chart. That's right. I said wall chart. You can put something on your wall. Directed differentiation of pluripotent stem cells. And this is a poster that was created by Kevin Egan and his colleagues at Harvard University. It's an easy-to-follow overview of different cell types derived from pluripotent stem cells divided into germ cells, endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm for quick reference. So you can get your free copies and explore the wall chart if you go to stemcell.com slash go direct. You want something like that you can hang on your wall and have a quick resource, Dalen? Look at all these stem cell types. I've seen this. I've seen it. It's a beautiful medley of every, you know, there's like 200 odd, maybe 300 more cell types in the body. And somehow, Kevin Egan and his boys and his girls have managed to smash all those onto one chart. Not really 300 of them, but a lot. It's a little overwhelming, but it's also very lovely. They do good work. They're stem cells in the schematics. It's really informative and, and beautiful to look at. It looks really nicely organized, categorized. 
I like things, putting everything in its little place. <laughs> Get it on your wall, Kiki. Get it on your wall. Yeah, so it's about 40 centimeters by 50 centimeters, 15 and three quarters inches by 19 and three quarters inches. If you've got space on your wall, everyone out there, again, you can go to stemcell.com slash go direct to get your free copy. All right, so our guest today is Dr. Stephen Duncan. He's a professor at the Medical University of South Carolina. Research in the Duncan Laboratory focuses on liver development and disease. He uses mice and induced pluripotent stem cells, iPSCs, as model systems. Dr. Duncan, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to uh, answering your questions. Well, we have a few, so let's get on with this. Can we start by giving our audience a little bit of introduction to your laboratory, your background, and uh, so the focus of your lab? The focus of my lab really is on on the liver and uh, how it develops during embryogenesis, as well as the diseases that are associated with the liver. I started um, as a postdoctoral fellow with James Darnell at the Rockefeller University, um, and his lab really focused on control of gene expression in the liver. I guess around that time, people were just starting to use embryonic stem cells to make knockout mice and conditional knockouts, and we were part of that sort of first wave of people that were trying to understand how specific transcription factors control the fate of cells. So that took us into starting to work with mouse embryonic stem cells. At the time, we were actually using mouse embryonic stem cells as a model for liver development. However, it became sort of a bit redundant because what was the point in doing mouse embryonic stem cells as a model when you could actually work in a physiological system and make knockouts or conditional knockouts in the animal itself? So we left mouse ES cells alone for many years and really focused on making um, embryos with specific mutations. But it was always in the back of our mind that it was a really nice in vitro model system that allowed us to answer pretty specific questions about how gene expression is regulated as a cell differentiates. After Jim's lab, I moved to the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And Wisconsin at the time uh, was just down the road from Jamie Thompson's lab. And Jamie had just worked out how to culture human embryonic stem cells. And so we sort of jumped on that bandwagon with the idea that if you can now model human embryonic development and human disease using human ES cells, this would be a really great way to start to understand what goes wrong um, in a human background. And then coincident with that, when the Yamanaka and the Thompson work came out showing that you can make human iPS cells, this opened up the world to being able to use a variety of genetic backgrounds where people had a predisposition to a disease or a developmental disorder that you could then model in the culture dish. And so we've really moved back into the world of stem cells almost exclusively at this point. We really have moved away from doing animal work to really focus on using embryonic stem cells as a model for liver disease and and parasite differentiation. Yeah, and that's really, I mean, because now you're you're not really using mice so much. You're, You're really working in a human cell model. Yeah, that's correct. There's a lot of advantages to using the mouse as a model as a physiological system. It really provides you with an animal that you can work with. But there are problems associated with it. And with the liver, there's a lot of differences in how metabolism is controlled between mouse and human. That reflects their diet as well as their evolution. 
And so a lot of the diseases that we see in humans really don't recapitulate well when you try to make the same mutation in the mouse. And so we were really interested in trying to use a human system because it may take us closer to the problems that we're studying. And so that's why one of the reasons we switched to using human pluripotent stem cells. Nice. So this is maybe a good opportunity to talk about in this study, you've gone from more developmental now into ES and now into human ES and disease modeling perhaps. What is uh, your new paper? Where does that fit in to your, your research on liver development and or disease modeling? The new paper is focused on trying to find ways to make homogenous populations of differentiated cells from stem cells. So one of the challenges that we find when we make these iPS cell-derived cells, and it's true whether it's liver cells or neurons or beta cells, whatever, is that you don't get a completely pure population. So you're taking a pluripotent cell and you're trying to trick it into going through a normal developmental process so that you end up with the cell type you want at the end of the day. The problem is that you don't end up with 100% pure cells of one lineage. You end up with cells that are 80, 90%, whatever, however good your protocol is. And as these cells uh, get to adopt a given hepatic fate, they then have to mature and become functional. And every step of the way, you take a loss. And so by the end of the day, although you've coped the cells to differentiate down the lineage you care about, the number of cells that are really fully mature within that population is usually pretty limited, which means you're, you're working with a heterogeneous population. So that's one issue. The second issue is that every cell line you make has a little bit of a difference in its differentiation efficiency. And so if you take three different patients and you make IPS cells from them, their ability to adopt a given fate is subtly different depending on the cell that you, you've generated. So we were looking for ways to sort of homogenize the population of cells so that we could do comparisons between patients with a given metabolic disease and control cells so that we could really accurately work out what a given allelic variation well, what the phenotype of a given allelic variation really is. If you're working with big diseases, in other words, Mendelian inherited diseases, examples would be familial hypercholesterolemia or alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency are good examples. If you have mutations in these genes, you have a, a sledgehammer disease, you really can knock out of the park. The heterogeneity within the differentiation is tolerable because the phenotype's really robust. However, if you're looking for mutations that have a more subtle phenotype, if your differentiations aren't identical between your control cells and the cells from the patients with allelic variation, it's really difficult to pick up these more subtle differences. And the truth of the matter is, as we move into multigenic diseases and different traits, a lot of these diseases are pretty subtle, although from a physiological perspective, they're really important. You can think of an example would be when you do GWAS studies for cardiovascular disease, um, pretty subtle allelic variations can result in pretty extreme differences in cholesterol metabolism that ultimately cause the cardiovascular disease. And it's quite difficult to pick these up if you don't have a really homogenous population of cells to work with. So this paper was really looking at ways to get around that. So it was, uh, I mean, I'm going to boil it down, sorry for oversimplifying, but you, you essentially used a novel method of categorizing the cells, a novel epitope or class of epitopes, I guess you would call it, which is, you know, the title of this episode we're talking about is the, the N-glycoproteome. And so I guess one question I had from reading your paper is that 
Do you see the, this N-glycoproteome library? I know in your paper you had like a 300-glycoproteome library that you started with, and you boiled it down to a few candidates that seem to be specific for uh, hepatocytes. Do you think there's a different class or a different signature of N-glycoproteome that is either attributed to other cell types that are therapeutically useful or maybe more importantly, uh, cells that are at different stages of maturation? Do they acquire a more refined glycoproteome signature that will allow us to really zero in on the most useful and most functional populations that we can get out of our cultures? Yeah, so ultimately that was the end point of the study. We really wanted to get a population that was most suitable for our use. Although the approaches we've, we've used to achieve this have been pretty novel, and we can go over these in a bit of detail later, but the ultimate idea has been around for a long time. So it was first developed when people were looking at different blood cell lineages. And the idea there was to develop banks of antibodies that recognize cell surface markers so that sublineages could be purified. And that was actually done empirically. So people injected mice with subfractions of, of membranes of cells and then identified monoclonal antibodies that recognized an epitope. They didn't at the time necessarily know what the proteins were, but they were able to show that you could then purify subsets of hematopoietic cells and uh, identify ultimately hematopoietic stem cells through these types of approaches. So we knew having a repertoire of cell surface markers allows you to fractionate the cells into different characteristics dependent upon that cell surface repertoire. So instead of us taking an antibody approach, which has its own value, we took a proteomic approach. And so basically what we did was we took initially the cell type that we wanted to get to, the primary fresh human hepatocyte, and try to identify all of the cell surface proteins or as many of the cell surface proteins as possible that are present on a hepatocyte surface. And so this is where this cell surface N-link glycoproteomics came in play, where we could, most cell surface proteins have an N-link glycoprotein. And so we could capture all of these and then identify what all these proteins were. It gave us the repertoire of cell surface molecules that were present. So after we did that with primary hepatocytes, we compared that to databases from other labs that have been contributing their own studies on different cell types to try to identify cell surface proteins that are, are highly enriched in the hepatocytes and give you a sort of a characteristic fingerprint of cell surface markers that tell you that you've really got a mature hepatocyte. And so that was the approach we took, and we, we came up with a small number of molecules that we felt were going to be useful and then used them to purify these uh, cells from our differentiated cell populations. But I think you're right. The idea of being able to identify different subsets is really, really valuable. Work from Gordon Keller's lab, for example, has shown that if you take monoclonal antibodies that are specific to endoderm markers, you can fractionate them into cell types that are more predisposed to becoming a hepatic fate, dependent on just a couple expression of a couple of markers. And so I think as we develop more complicated cell surface maps of each stage of the developmental process, it will become actually pretty easy to purify different subsets of cell types as the differentiation progresses and thereby try to optimize each stage of the differentiation process so that you end up with, with cells that are as close to a mature hepatocyte in our case as possible. And so do you think this methodology could be easily adapted for different stem cell lineages, for different laboratories, for use in various purposes? 
Yeah, so um, one of my collaborators is really the, the technical force behind all of this, Rebecca Gundry, who's at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She's really been pushing this approach. It's really her expertise. And what she's been able to do is that she started mapping cell surface proteins on, for example, cardiac myocytes with the same idea that you can purify myocyte lineages, as well as pluripotent stem cell lineages so that you can purify populations of, of cells that are at a, a baseline state of pluripotency. And she's made some really interesting discoveries where she's been able to identify proteins in the cell surface of of pluripotent cells that actually can be destroyed by using a small molecule. So the idea would be that if there's a resident pluripotent population that contaminates your differentiated cell population, by putting on this small molecule, you could just get rid of all of the contaminating pluripotent cells. This is potential application if you're starting to think of using um, IPS or pluripotent stem cell derived cell types for transplant therapy because you really don't want to be transferring pluripotent cells because of the potential to form teratomas. Right. And so do you think that this is, you know, the flow cytometry and, um, you know, the ease of use? What are the limitations of this versus, as you mentioned, the more basic antigen level strategy? So for cell transplant therapy, for most of these, if we're talking about the liver, most cell transplant experiments, you're utilizing about 10 to the 11 cells. So it's a huge numbers of purified cells are required. And that becomes really difficult to do by fax. But you can use other types of approaches that, are, that, that maybe allow, allow you to gather more cells. So magnetic bead sorting is now a good way to get large numbers of cells. And that would still use a similar approach. Once you've got the good cell surface markers and good antibodies, it opens up that possibility of, of capturing these large numbers of cells. There's also other ways you can do this. They're sort of old-fashioned, but in some ways might be more efficient. So, for example, if you know the cell surface markers, you can identify cell surface markers that interact. So, for example, let's take ECAD here as an example. So this is a cell surface marker that is involved in the generation of cell junctions. If you have a marker like a cadherin, you can basically coat a plate with another cadherin and allow the two cadherins to bind and then just release them for a plate. And you can basically pan for your cells of interest using pretty low technology but it's very gentle in the cells and allows you to produce huge numbers of cells using these types of approaches. So I think by yeah. combining bioinformatics with cell surface capture and uh, cell surface epitopes, I think this is going to be a, a really important way going forward of how we generate enough cells to use in transplant therapy. Panning for hepatocytes, the new gold rush. I've got this imagery <laughs> of, you know, shaking out the cells. <laughs> So, yeah, we, we, we do. Um, I mean, we actually started with e-cadherin as, as an example. And that's why I used that. Um, we generated uh, a while ago, we generated a hybrid molecule that is part e-cadherin and part the heavy chain of IgG. And so you make this chimeric protein and the IgG domain, as it would with any antibody, interacts with plastic really well because it's um, very hydrophobic, so it binds well to plastic surfaces. So when you do that, you end up with plates that are coated with this chimeric protein with the e-cadherin sort of sticking upwards. And so if you put hepatocytes or any e-cadherin-expressing cell onto that surface, it binds really well. 
and then you can wash off any cells that don't express e-cadherin. And then it's very easy to release the cells just by depleting the culture media with calcium inoculators. So we've actually been doing that in the lab now. The trouble with e-cadherin is not specific to hepatocytes. And so we're looking for other molecules that could work the same way or combinations of molecules that may be more specific. In reading your paper, it brought to mind, I know you're focused on development and in vitro differentiation of these pluripotent cells, but it struck me that maybe these markers might be differentially presented in disease as well. Have you extended your study to look at maybe primary hepatocytes from disease versus healthy patients? I think that's a great idea. I really like it. One of the challenges is getting hepatocytes from a diseased patient is difficult. So it has to be somebody that has either uh, died from a, another cause where you can get access to the liver. And it's just difficult to be in the right place at the right time to do that. But in saying that, cell surface proteins are key to so many processes. So, for example, infectious agents all use cell surface proteins to enter cells. One of the proteins that we actually ended up focusing on this SLC10A1 is one of the proteins that we use to purify the hepatocytes. It turns out that that is a cell surface receptor for hep hepatitis B virus. And so antibodies that you then generate against that could be potentially used therapeutically to block HPV infection. And the same argument could be made for malaria. Malaria uses the LDL receptor, low-density lipoprotein receptor, as a co-receptor to get into cells. And so you could start to, by understanding the repertoire of cell surface proteins, you can start to think about ways of identifying interactions either with infectious agents or, as you said, with other processes. Familial hypercholesterolemia is a good example. Mutations in the LDL receptor end up causing huge amounts of LDL cholesterol circulating in serum that causes cardiovascular disease. And so I think by having this whole map of cell surface proteins that are present in hepatocytes, we now have a good understanding of what cell surface proteins are present and therefore can be involved in disease processes. And so it allows us to really start to think about these as, as targets for therapeutics. Are there any targets or any of these proteins that seem to be conserved from the primary hematopoietic cells, so from circulating blood cells, for instance? That's another good question. So when we went into this, one of the problems that we all face in our fields is, is having good antibodies. Many commercial companies will market an antibody, but once you actually start looking at the characteristics of the antibody, it's not necessarily specific or it doesn't bind to the epitope you think it binds to. And so it can be really problematic. So one of the things that we did was there are classes of antibodies that have been really well characterized. They're called these CD antigens or CD molecules. And they were the molecules that were originally used to purify the hematopoietic lineages. And so we actually, knowing that these antibodies already exist, we developed using, once we had the cell surface repertoire of proteins, we just looked for the whole makeup of all the CD molecules that were then expressed in a hepatocyte and tried to determine CD fingerprints that could be used to identify hepatocytes. And that certainly exists in there. We actually, I don't think we ended up including it in the paper because it got a little bit complicated. Uh, but, <laughs> but we now have a, a fingerprint of CD molecules that you can develop basically for any population of cells that you develop this cell surface repertoire for. And so using that, you can it's very good for phenotyping a given cell characteristic as well mm -hmm. as purifying it. 
So let me just shift gears there. I'm sorry, but you know, a lot of our listeners are really focused on the clinical translational element of this. So, I, you know, you're a guy who's been in the field, you've gone from development, pushed forward into this. Now, maybe we're on the cusp of being relevant clinically. What do you think is the way that the, the liver cells, I guess, specifically are going to enter the clinic? I know there's a lot of these ideas of using the pancreatic beta cells that are encapsulated so that they can function without being, you know, vulnerable to immune attack. Do you think that there can be like little liver modules as well that can go in and supplement patients? I know that's one of the ideas that's out there and how we can actually deliver a cell therapy in the form of hepatocytes. What are the challenges to that? Or do you think it's viable at all? So I'm a fan of using iPS cells that derive cell types, and some of these cell types will be really useful. Unlike most cell types, most organs are dependent upon a facultative stem cell for repair, but the liver isn't. The main mechanism of repair for the liver is that the hepatocyte itself re-enters the cell cycle. So the reason I'm telling you this is that it's an important concept because it turns out that if you take primary human hepatocytes, it's actually pretty easy to expand these cells in an animal model. So you can reasonably easily generate animals with humanized livers. And the reason I bring that up is that these cells that you make in animals are much, much better than the cells that you make from an iPS cell. And so we can actually generate, not necessarily just me, but the field can generate large numbers of hepatocytes without having to go through an iPS cell model at this point. I'm a little bit skeptical that, that, that adding the additional complexity of having iPS cells in there is actually necessary in the case of the liver. Now, it may be that we can at some point generate huge numbers of these cells, and that's the way in the long term that we go. But I think there's a lot can be done with existing cell types that may be quicker if we can get FDA regulations uh, so is, approved, for example. Sorry, is that to say then you that instead of getting tissue from in vitro culture of IPS or some other, that you would just get like a donor, an allograft? You would be, get a system where you could expand primary hematocytes from like a HLA bank, and then those could be broadly applied. Is that kind of what you're alluding to? There's multiple ways you can do it. So all of this depends on the severity of somebody's disease. But an individual's own hepatocytes can be collected by harvesting a lobe of liver. Obviously, there's, there's risk in the surgery, but the remaining lobe of the liver should repopulate. So you, so you can actually make banks of your own hepatocytes without having to go to a stem cell. If you can do it from a stem cell, it's better because there's less risk involved, but it's not impossible to do it from an individual. But the second way, as you said, is to do it using HLA-matched banks. And roughly 100 different cell lines should be enough to, to match most of the major histocompatibility loci and then generate basically farms of animals that supply human hepatocytes. And there's efforts underway to do that. There's a small biotech company actually out of, of Oregon called uh, Eucurus, who are at the moment very successfully using mice to grow and distribute primary hepatocytes. And it's very, very impressive at the moment. The problem with mice is that their livers are relatively small, but more recently, right. a pig model has been developed that allows you to humanize the pig. And so you could actually potentially generate human livers in a, in a pig that will not only give you many more hepatocytes, but potentially, arguably, could be used to actually transplant the whole humanized pig liver. And so depending on the disease, there's a lot can be done. So, so if you could take human hepatocytes and actually make 
a liver assist device using the hepatocytes. So instead of transplanting the cells, make a bioengineered liver support. Often with acute liver failure, for example, if you can keep the person alive for a couple of weeks, the endogenous hepatocytes that are within the individual will repopulate and the person will be fine and recover. It's just that the acute liver failure ultimately can cause death due to buildup of ammonia levels predominantly. And so there are other ways that are probably easier to do than trying to get IPS cells to make enough hepatocytes for transplant. Now, in saying that, at the end of the day, if we could come up with protocols that really made matched fully functional hepatocytes, that would be fabulous. At some point, I think that will be feasible. I think at this point, it's not. I just think, you know, one of the things that I'm glad we finally touched on is that regenerative nature of the liver and the fact that these cells are different from other organ cells or organ populations within the body. And so there is this intrinsic factor to the liver, like skin, it's going to keep repopulating and replenishing. And so what is it that makes the liver different? There's a lot known about the liver at this point, and a lot known about the signaling pathways that control that. The liver is like a giant sponge. And it's the first organ that really um, encounters toxins that are coming in through the blood. And so its role is to deal with these highly toxic substances that you're taking in when you drink a bottle of Coca-Cola or whatever it is. The problem is that um, the liver's constantly getting assaulted. And so evolutionarily, it needs to be constantly replacing itself because the cells are being damaged. And so there's a lot of study being done on, on, on the mechanisms through which the liver replaces itself as a whole field. Um, and there's a lot known about it. And it's, it is interesting. It uses growth factors and growth signaling pathways to, to control the re-entry of hepatocytes into the cell cycle. But it is something that can be exploited because unlike most other tissues and cell types, when they reach full differentiation, they go into a senescent state, and it's very hard for them to go back into the cell cycle. That's not true for the liver. It's, it's very easy for the liver to re-enter the cell cycle, and it does so quite uh, often, <laughs> uh, depending on whether you're drinking too many single malts or not. So what do you think about the detox thing? You know, people are all the time going, oh, I'm going to go on a 15-day detox and drink lemon juice and cayenne pepper or I'm going to... All of these things, um, I mean, sometimes there's an element of truth. There's a grain of truth, but generally it's kind of ridiculous. It's it's just not the way it works and it's mismarketing of of ideas that are more complicated. Certainly, look, diet affects liver function. You change your diet, your liver responds differently. You don't want to be eating things that are rich in toxins. If you can keep that lower, your liver will be in better shape. But yeah, I think the idea of flushes, it seems a bit ridiculous to me, but I'm no expert in nutrition. (laughs) (laughs) got the uh, stats, though, I'm sure. Tell me, how many of the developed world of the U.S. population do you know offhand is affected by liver disease and or dysfunction? It's a huge number, isn't it, by percentage of mortality? Yeah, it's a huge number. The problem is that it affects predominantly middle-aged people, so people that are really at the prime of their productive lives. Although the individual diseases can be kind of rare, as a group, they're very, very common. And that's true whether it's metabolic disease or infectious disease all around the world. There's different demographics, obviously. Um, Hepatitis B virus in Asia is endemic and uh, causes hepatocellular carcinoma, so you end up 
having these large numbers of the population suffering from infectious liver disease. Whereas in the West, it tends to be more metabolic liver disease where you have everything from metabolic syndrome to diabetes. All of these involve the liver. If it's not the liver, that's a major organ. The liver's involved in its control. So yeah, it's really predominant at this point. What you're working on is a great methodology and the step-by-step nature of trying to find a way to fix the diseases of the liver, try and keep the liver repairing itself. It's just fantastic. So I think this is where IPS cells really come into play because I think by far the biggest immediate role of IPS cells has been able to model complicated, rare metabolic diseases or diseases in general. And so this has been a big focus in my lab going forward is is we're modeling these rare diseases that affect maybe a small number of people that don't necessarily justify a huge pharmaceutical investment, but are critical if you're the parent of a child that suffers from a rare disease. And so I would say uh, over three quarters of my lab now is modeling these rare diseases uh, using iPS cells to generate hepatocytes that generate the disease in the dish and then using small molecule screens to try to find new drugs that can reverse these diseases. And I think we're really making big headway in that area. So it's really exciting. I think it's going to be a very productive area going forward. Most things, I guess, understanding the problem, first step to the solution, right, Dr. Duncan? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Sometimes it's worth just giving it a shot. But you know, <laughs> yeah, well, I've learned my whole career, I've just been giving it a shot. And I don't know, it's worked out maybe maybe two, three percent of the time. <laughs> I'm going to take a page out of your book moving forward. Sure. <laughs> Thanks for uh, being with us. This was a great, great interview. Pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, that was a really good one. Stephen Duncan with the hurricane bearing down on him. I hope he makes it through the week, this guy. He's doing such good research, and I hope his mouse colonies, his cells, his grad students, they all survive the week. Any thoughts, Kiki? Well, uh, grad students and mice, you can't really stick those in liquid nitrogen, but... (laughs) (laughs) Are we sure about that? (laughs) You know, yeah, the work that he's doing is just, just fantastic. And it was, it was wonderful to get the time to talk with him. Just absolutely. At this point, we should close the show, right? We're done. Yeah, that's it. We're almost done. Time for the good old stem cell podcast rant. The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? It's a pretty petty rant. I apologize to anyone who wanted some substance, and it stems from my miserable experience flying to Korea. It was 15 hours there, 15 hours back. I got switched because I didn't understand Korean, and I was the only white face on the plane. I somehow got convinced to get into the... I was on an aisle seat. I was all set up. And these older ladies started smiling at me and saying some stuff, and before I knew it, I was in the middle seat behind me because I swapped out with them so that they could all be together. And I spent 15 hours like that. And the person across the aisle from me was fidgeting. And it had feet on the squeaky plastic footrest and fidgeting. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the squeaking, I can rant about squeaking, but that's just like a physical quality in the universe. But fidgeters need to go. They need to be put to rest. I'm done with the fidgeters. And I'm not going to take it anymore. So somebody sitting next to you playing with their hair, their fingers, like, I'm just going to 
pick at my fingers a little bit right here while I'm talking to you. This is bothering you. Anxious. Somebody who has to grab all of the little packets, the sugar packets at the coffee, at the table when you're talking and yeah. put them in place and arrange and rearrange the silverware. <laughs> Explain it. Do you understand it? Why do they do it? So there are a couple of, like, there are studies that suggest people who fidget are actually highly intelligent and that this is a redirection of mental energy. Okay, well, the smart guy's going to get beat up if he keeps being so smart. You know what I'm saying? So there was another study. Does chewing bother you? Oh, you mean like the... When you hear people chewing? uh, I can't blame them with the mouth open chewing. My wife sometimes, when she eats cereal, she'll like... I just want to smack her. (laughs) (laughs) There was a study that also came out, I think in the last week, that said that people who get annoyed at other people chewing are highly oh, no. intelligent. Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's, you know, on both sides, we've got intelligent people who just can't control their mental energy and they have to, it has to go somewhere. <laughs> you know, they're like little squirrels somehow. I have a little bit of that. I'm going to admit it. Constantly moving in some oh, way. It doesn't bother me on you, Katie. <laughs> it bothered me on this guy. But, you know, you also are intelligent because you're not fidgeting. Your mental energy is going toward paying attention to things in your environment. Okay, so let's, let's compare those. There's being annoying, which means you're <laughs> smart, and there's being annoyed. I, I'd rather be annoyed than be annoying. But I don't know. Maybe that's a toss-up. On this plane, I'd rather have been the annoying one because then maybe I could have slept. And then you can sleep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, everyone. Do you like being annoyed or do you like being annoying? Let us know (laughs) and send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen, this concludes episode 76 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Great information. Great interview with... Dr. Duncan. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, which is going to be in a couple of weeks, delivering you all the latest papers and another fantastic interview. Dalen, I'm looking forward to the next time. Yeah, me too, Kiki. Thanks to you and thanks for everyone, all our listeners out there and our guest and that guy who is annoying. No thanks to you, my friend. <laughs>